Uh, so we are halfway through the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel 7 tonight, and I sent an email this morning. Hopefully, y'all got it. Hopefully, many of you read it, but sent an email this morning, which just was meant to serve as kind of an introduction to the second part of Daniel, all the visions and dreams and, and how we're to think of that. And it wasn't a very technical email. It has more to do with cultivating a willingness to stay in texts that we don't immediately understand, to be able to persevere in texts that we read and we say, I don't understand what's going on, but I want to, and so I'm going to persevere in it. Now, here's something I didn't include in the email this morning, but it's an important guideline for us going forward in these last chapters of Daniel, and it's this. Biblical prophecy is is never general information about the world. Biblical prophecy is never just general information about the world. It always focuses on the people of God. It always focuses on the people of God and how they will relate to what is being prophesied. So I'll come back to that several times tonight and in the coming weeks. So let's pray and then we'll jump into Daniel 7. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray for open ears, attentive minds. We pray for open hearts. I I pray that you would help me to speak good and true words that communicate your heart to us and your intent in Daniel 7 tonight. I uh, pray that what stumps us, what's difficult to understand, uh, would not defeat us, but that we would persevere with a heart that desires to engage your word, to engage your truth, and to engage the world through your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so go ahead and turn to Daniel 7. And we're going to start at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he laid in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So we're backing up in time a little bit. If you remember in Daniel 5, that was the last day of Belshazzar's reign as king of Babylon. It was the last day of the Babylonian Empire. That was in chapter 5. In chapter 6, Darius the Mede has been king for a while. Now we back up in chapter 7, and it's the first year of Belshazzar. So I'm not exactly sure how many years we go back, but we go back in time a little bit in chapter 7 here. And, and uh, Daniel has, dream, has a dream, a vision and a dream, and that should remind us of Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar has two dreams, and Daniel interprets those dreams for him. Now it's Daniel himself who has a dream here in chapter 7. Verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Okay, so the four winds of heaven stir up the great sea, and these these winds could be heavenly agents, they could be angels, but it's more likely that it's referring to the saints. It's referring to the people of God of that time, which would have been Jewish. It's referring to the people of God, the saints. Uh, This becomes more clear in some of the later chapters of Daniel, so we're just going to kind of take it for granted right now that the four winds probably mean the saints. In Zechariah 2.6, Uh, The Lord says, up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. And so that's talking to the people of Israel being spread abroad as the four winds of the heavens. And so as the saints live faithfully in the world, they stir up the sea. 
And we've said before that the sea is symbolic of the Gentile world. And we might wonder, well, why is the sea symbolic of the Gentile world? Well, uh, one reason might be that it's vast. The Gentile world was, was quite vast because the people of God, the, the Israelites, were very small. Also, it's very dark. It's a land without God. And it's very chaotic. It's a chaotic place. So I think that's part, probably why the sea is symbolic of the Gentile world. And out of the sea come four beasts, one after the other. Now, while Daniel sees four individual beasts come out of the sea, we want to think of them as not just four individual beasts, but as one beast made up of the four. Okay, we want to think of one beast made up of these four beasts that come out of the sea. And we're prepared for this because if you remember back in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream where he sees uh, an image that's made of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. It's a, it's a fourfold image, but it's one image with four parts. And we have the same thing going on here in seven where there's four beasts that come out of the sea, but the picture is that they're really one beast. Again, it's, it's where God is setting up his house in the world. And God is setting up his house through these four successive empires that we're going to look at in these four individual beasts. Does that make sense? All right. Moving on, verse 4. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Okay, so first up is a lion with eagle's wings. And I think this one is not too hard for us to figure out. We already know that Babylon is the first of the four empires. And I think that uh, where it talks about eagle's wings, we remember that when Nebuchadnezzar is exiled and he's humbled, his hair grows as long as eagle's wings. Do you remember that detail from chapter 4? His hair grows as long as eagle's wings. Um, but the wings are plucked and the beast is made to stand on two feet like a man. And I think that points to his restoration from exile when he's brought back. The, the long hair is cut and he's lifted from the ground. His sanity is restored to him and he goes from having the mind of a beast to having the mind of a man again when he's humbled and he's converted. So I think that one's not too difficult for us to figure out. We can see some of the symbolism we remember from chapter 4. Verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. This one's more difficult. But we already know that the empire that followed the Babylonians was the Medo-Persian Empire. We read about that in chapter 6. Um, and at the end of chapter 5, Belshazzar is killed and Darius the Mede is given the kingdom. And the symbolic picture of this beast is a bear. And there are three ribs in the bear's mouth. And this is kind of unusual. If the picture was strictly of a bear eating flesh, we wouldn't think of three ribs necessarily. We'd just think of bones, all kinds of bones being chewed up in the bear's mouth. But there's three ribs. And so we think, well, that's weird, okay? And when we think that's weird... We want, to re we want to consult our biblical memory and think, okay, well, where else do ribs come into play in Scripture? All right, anybody want to take a guess on where else ribs play in Scripture? Hmm? Genesis, Genesis 2, okay? When God takes Adam's rib out of his side and builds a woman. 
And he builds the woman to be his helper. Okay? So when we see rib in this context, we can think helper. And that is, there are three helpers to the bear. There are three helpers that help the bear. And in the Bible, there are three men who help the, the kings in the Medo-Persian Empire during this time. There's Daniel, who serves Darius and Cyrus. There's Mordecai, who serves King Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. He saves him from being assassinated. And at the end of the book of Esther, Mordecai is raised up to second in command in the whole empire. And then there's Nehemiah, who serves in the court of King Artaxerxes. He's a valued servant in the court of King Artaxerxes. And they're all helpers to these Persian kings. So I think that explains the three ribs. Verse 6. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Okay, so this third kingdom is the kingdom of Greece. We'll learn more about that next week in the vision in Daniel chapter 8. It goes into more detail about the empire of Greece. Uh, but for now, the main thing that we want to pick up on here is that dominion is given to it. And we've been reminded in the last couple of weeks that God gives dominion where he will. And so this empire uh, gets dominion from God. It doesn't go out and achieve it for itself, but it receives dominion from God. And when these kings make themselves great in their eyes, when they're suffused with pride, that's when God brings them down. And that's when the next empire takes over. Verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So this fourth beast is terrifying, it's dreadful, and it's exceedingly strong. But we're not told what kind of animal it is. So in the first three, there's a lion, there's a bear, there's a leopard, but not this one, just that this beast has great iron teeth, it stamps with its feet, and it has ten horns. And the teeth of iron recall the image from Daniel 2. There's a lot of similarities between the, the image that Nebuchadnezzar dreams about in Daniel 2 and Daniel's dream here in chapter 7. And in the image in Daniel 2, the, the image, its feet were made of iron mixed with clay. And so here, this beast that has iron teeth reminds us of, of that part in the statue in Daniel 2. There's a link between the iron feet and the iron teeth. And this beast is the Roman Empire. So this is the fourth of the four empires. It's the Roman Empire. But Daniel would not have known that. Daniel wouldn't have known that this was the Roman Empire. At the time when Daniel has this vision, the other three empires are formed to some degree. Babylon's going on, the Medes and Persians are getting ready to take over before too long, and Greece is out there. Uh, but the Roman Empire hasn't been formed yet. The, the Roman people haven't been formed yet. They're still a couple hundred years off. All Daniel knows is that there will be a terrifying fourth kingdom. And again, I want to remind us that biblical prophecy is never just general information about the world. It's about the people of God and how they are going to relate to what's prophesied about. So what's most important here is not the beast itself, but how the beast relates to the people of God through these ten horns that Daniel sees. So there's ten horns, and they're all visible at once. And we find out later that these are ten kings or ten emperors of the Roman Empire. 
But then Daniel witnesses something. So verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like a man, like eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So now we're not looking directly at the beast, but we're zeroing in on these ten horns, and then this little horn that pushes its way up among the horns. And three horns kind of fall down before it. And the little horn gets a lot of attention in Daniel 7 and 8, so we want to spend time talking about it and make sure that we understand it. The little horn has eyes like the eyes of a man, and it has a mouth like the mouth of a man, and the mouth speaks great things. It's not boasting necessarily. The emphasis is more on speaking great things, mesmerizing with its speech. And it mesmerizes with its speech, and that's how the three horns that kind of fall down before it, that are plucked up by the roots, make way for it. So the idea is that three of the, the Roman kings or the Roman emperors make way for this little horn to have power. And later on, I'm going to talk about who the, the little horn probably is and who, how the little horn received power from the Roman kings. Um, but the important thing to recognize is not necessarily that the little horn defeats the three kings, more that the three kings give it power. The little horn is given power. And again, we want to keep God's people squarely in view here. Three of the first horns, they give power to the little horn, and that means that this is how God's people primarily are going to interact with the fourth beast, is through this little horn. The three kings give it power. That's how the people of God are going to relate to this fourth beast, is through the little horn, whether for good or for ill. For God's people, the little horn is the visible face of the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire. And we want to remember that this little horn is not original to the beast. It pushes its way up. And that reminds us that in chapter 2, the iron feet are mixed with clay. It's an unnatural mixture. And I think I said back when I talked about Daniel 2 that the clay refers to the rebellious Jews. It refers to the rebellious Jews who persecuted the faithful people of God. Um, man is from the earth. Okay, Man is from the earth in Genesis 2. And clay is fired earth. It's hardened earth. And it points to hard-hearted man, rebellious man in the earth. So you have this mixture of iron and clay, and the clay is rebellious, hard-hearted man working against its own people in conjunction with the Roman Empire. It's an unnatural mixture. And so we have a similar thing here. This little horn, then, is going to be a rebellious figure working against his own people. It's an unfaithful one of God's own people. And it's been given power by the Roman leaders. Does that make sense? We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that a couple of times. Verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So now the stage seems to give way to a brand new scene. Daniel's having this visionary experience, and now the scene shifts to something totally different. Thrones are placed, the Ancient of Days takes his seat, the court sits in judgment, and books are opened. That's the action that Daniel witnesses. 
And the Ancient of Days sits on a throne of fiery flames and burning wheels. And this points us to the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 1, uh, Ezekiel sees God's chariot in the heavens. And he's enthroned on the chariot. And I think that link shows us that the Ancient of Days here in Daniel 7 is God the Father who revealed himself as Yahweh to the people of God. We're meant to understand the Ancient of Days as God. And what Daniel sees is the divine council. We've talked about the divine council before. Daniel sees the divine council gathered and assembled. And like Isaiah, he witnesses its proceedings. But all the while, as this is going on, the previous scene with the fourth beast and the little horn is still going on. So verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rests of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So while the Ancient of Days is sitting down and the courts assembled and the books are opened, the little horn is still speaking great things. So we're meant to keep the two scenes kind of going on at the same time. The little horn speaking great things as the Ancient of Days is sitting and the books are, excuse me, as the books are open. Now, surprisingly, it says that the beast is killed. And I think this refers to the little horn only, not the whole fourth beast, but that the little horn is killed. Uh, because it goes on to say that the, the beasts retain their power for a little time. Their dominion is taken away, but their lives are prolonged. Only the beastly little horn is killed, and it's burned with fire. And this is an interesting thing. It's significant that it's burned with fire, this little horn. And I think it further points to the rebellious Jews as the identity of the little horn. Leviticus 21.9. Anybody know Leviticus 21.9? No. Okay. Leviticus 21.9 says, And the daughter of any priest... If she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned up with fire. This is the only place in the whole law where an individual is ordered to be burned up for something. And it's if the daughter of a priest profanes her father by whoring. Now, Jerusalem is frequently referred to as daughter Jerusalem or daughter Zion by the prophets. And when Judah is unfaithful, Nebuchadnezzar burns the temple with fire. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he burns the temple with fire. Here, the little horn that interacts with God's people must be an unfaithful Jew because it's burned with fire after it's killed. Does that make sense? So the beasts lose their power. And this points to the fourth kingdom, Rome, no longer being the place where God's house is. God's house has been with each of the successive empires, but at this point now, God's house is no longer with the fourth empire, but its life is prolonged for a time. Rome goes on for a few more centuries. It continues to exist, but it's merely as a man-directed empire. And so we should ask, okay, so what event of significance happens that ends this time of God's kingdom being in these four successive empires? What event happens that changes everything? Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So after the little horn is killed and is burned with fire, one like a son of man comes with the clouds of heaven. And so we should ask, what do we know about clouds? Biblically, what do we know about clouds? Well, clouds reside in the heavens. In Ezekiel 1, God's chariot rides on the clouds. Jesus ascended to heaven and was hid by a cloud. That's in Acts 1. He ascends to heaven and he's hid by a cloud. And at Jesus' trial, the high priest demands that Jesus say whether he is the Messiah. And Jesus replies, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, Jesus answers, yes, I am the Daniel 7, one like a son of man who receives the kingdom. And that means that you and all who oppose me are the little horn that is going to be killed and that is going to be burned with fire. That's why the high priest tears his robes and gets so furious because Jesus is claiming to be the Daniel 7 man, one like a son of man, and that means that they're the little horn. And that's what happens in Jerusalem in AD 70. The Romans come, they overthrow Jerusalem, they burn it with fire. Now the Ancient of Days gives the kingdom to one like a son of man, and it says that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. This is empire language. And we remember from chapter 2 that a rock not carved by human hand comes and smashes the, the statue on its feet, on its iron feet, and it crumbles away into dust. And that rock becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. And that's the saints, as we'll see shortly. That mountain that fills the whole earth is the saints. It's the people of God. The one like the Son of Man represents the saints as their king. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So Daniel's troubled because he has a dream, but he doesn't understand it. In the past, when Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and didn't understand them, he went to Daniel and Daniel interpreted them for him. Now somebody needs to be Daniel for Daniel because he doesn't understand the dream. So he goes to, he says he went to one there. That's probably somebody in the divine council, one of the, the thousands of thousands that attends. And he approaches and he asks what this means. And this figure summarizes the whole vision by saying, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and forever. So we think, that's weird. Where were the saints? I mean, in the vision so far, where were the saints? We've had four beasts, a little horn, the Ancient of Days, and one like a son of man. But there were no, there were no saints, there were no, there were no other people there. So where are the saints? And the implication is that the saints are with the one like a son of man who receives the kingdom from the ancient of days. 
which makes perfect sense for us because as we've emphasized all throughout Ephesians, we are in Christ, right? What's true of Christ is true of us. We are in Christ. We have ascended with him and we have received the kingdom with him. So Ephesians 2, 5 and 6 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That sounds an awful lot like what's going on here in Daniel chapter 7. The saints are in the train of the one like the son of man who receives the kingdom. And remember in Ephesians 4, Paul quoting Psalm 68 and saying, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So by God's design, four beasts, four kings and their kingdoms will rise to power, but in the end, the saints will receive the kingdom through the one like the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus. Does that make sense? Is that good? Verse 19. I know it's hot. (laughs) Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So Daniel wants to know more about this fourth beast. And we learn something new in the explanation. The little horn makes war on the saints and prevails over them. That wasn't previously in what Daniel had seen. The little horn makes war on the saints and prevails over them. Verse 23, thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. So we talked about how the feet of iron mixed with clay is the mixture of the Roman Empire with the rebellious Jewish people that turn on their own people. And we see the same thing here. In the fourth beast, there are ten kings, but then there's another horn that wedges its way among three of them, And I think I said, too, that this is probably a powerful Jewish ruler that's turned against God's own people. And this is probably the Herods. Okay, this is probably the Herods. There were three Herods. There was Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus and is responsible for the slaughter of the innocents, all the babies two and under. That was Herod the Great. It continues with Herod Antipas, who is part of Jesus's crucifixion. He and Pilate become friends on the day that Jesus is killed. And then there's, it concludes with Herod Agrippa, who puts James the Apostle to death by the sword in Acts chapter 12. So the little horn is most likely pointing in the future to the Herods and the rebellious Jews with the Herods, and namely the, the scribes and the, the Pharisees and the elders who oppose Jesus and his followers. They are how the Roman Empire presents themselves to the people of God. That's how the fourth beast presents itself to the people of God, is through the Herods, through the rebellious Jews. They are the ones who wage war on the saints. 
it's not the Romans who wage war on the saints during this time. It's quite a while. It's a couple decades before the Romans actually turn on the Christians. In Jesus's ministry and in the final decades of, in the first decades of the church, the opposition is almost totally from Jewish opponents and not from the Romans. They don't, the Roman Empire doesn't turn beastly until later. Verse 25. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So they seek to change the times and the law. And if you remember from chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar accuses the wise guy of holding out, of delaying until the times change because the times changing reflect a change in leadership, okay? And um, Daniel says later that it's God who changes the times. God is the one who changes the times. And in the days of the fourth beast and the little horn, God does change the times by installing his Messiah, the King Jesus, on his holy hill, by making Jesus the one true Lord. God changes the times that way. And the Herods and the the rebellious Jews oppose it. And they fight against it. They seek to change the times. They want to prevent God's anointed from becoming king. And they try to change the law, the law that comes with the new covenant. And we're reminded of Psalm 2, 1 through 6, which says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens, the ancient of days, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Holy hill, we should think of holy mountain, the mountain that covers the earth in chapter 2. Verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. The little horn's power will be taken away. The last Herod was put to death by God himself. He made himself great. He did not give God glory. And the angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and he died. That's in Acts 12. And beyond the Herods, the the rebellious Jews don't fare much better. Because in AD 70, Rome sacks the city, burns Jerusalem, burns the temple with fire. Not one stone is left upon another. And when that happens, the saints receive the kingdom. And now, the kingdom of God, this empire, resides in the worldwide church. We are the kingdom of God. All the peoples, nations, and languages, all dominions are to serve the Most High, and we, the church, lead them into it, and we lead them into it through our worship of the one true God and of his Christ. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in the Daniel 8 vision next week, which is largely about worship. Okay, one point of application tonight. I'm sure you're all glad. And this is the pattern that I want to talk about that's in Daniel 7 and also throughout the rest of Scripture. The pattern is tribulation followed by divine judgment followed by vindication. Tribulation, divine judgment, vindication. 
That's the pattern. The little war or the little horn makes war on the saints and conquers them. The ancient of days judges the case and the saints are vindicated and receive the kingdom. That's what we see in Daniel 7. And everything we've read in Daniel so far prepares us for this. It points us in this direction. So Daniel and his friends in chapter 1 are taken into exile, and they're required to eat from the king's table. That's tribulation, because they don't want to do it. They're tested for 10 days, and God passes judgment and shows that they are in the right by fattening them on seeds and water. They're vindicated, and they're promoted in the kingdom. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are put to the test as to whether they'll participate in idolatrous worship. They're cast into the burning, fiery furnace. But judgment is given that they're in the right and they're preserved. They are not burned up like the little horn is going to be burned up. Daniel's tested whether he's going to be faithful to God despite Darius's law. He's cast into the den of lions, but again, he's judged to be in the right. And he's delivered and he's vindicated and he's elevated in the kingdom. There are little horns who speak great things all the time and make war on the saints. But what matters is divine judgment and the, and the one who can vindicate the saints. Does that make sense? That's what matters. That's the pattern. It's all over scripture. Abraham and Sarah experienced decades of infertility. But God credits Abraham's faith as righteousness and they receive Isaac. Moses and the Israelites endure the cruel suffering of Pharaoh. But God hears their cries and judges in their favor and delivers them at the Red Sea. Jesus endures the, the agony of the cross and the humiliation of his enemies. But God declares him to be in the right and vindicates him by raising him from the dead. That's the pattern. Tribulation, divine judgment, vindication. Most of what we experience in life is the tribulation part. Most of what we experience in our day-to-day life is the tribulation part. Christians are in a cultural minority. Sometimes we're attacked. Sometimes our tribulation consists of living in a world that just takes it for granted that God's claim on how life should be lived just doesn't matter and can be ignored. In Acts 17, Paul's in Athens, and it says that Paul's spirit was provoked in him as he saw the city was full of idols. And I'm sure we can all relate to that. As we go around and as we see things, our spirit is provoked by the idolatry that we see. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote in one of his letters, he says, I am a Christian so that I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat, though it contains some samples or glimpses of final victory. I expect history to be a long defeat, but it contains samples or glimpses of final victory. Consider that in his masterpiece, The Lord of the Rings, this thousand-page book, 99% of it involves the main characters experiencing tribulation. 99% of it is them in danger, being watched, being attacked, being in fear, wondering how it's all going to turn out, and it's only at the very end that they're vindicated. Most of the book is about living faithfully in what they feel like is a long defeat. This is at the heart of Daniel 7. The people of God will live within four successive empires, and the fourth one is terrifying, and it's dreadful. It has iron teeth and stamping feet. And the little horn that speaks great things makes war on the saints. This is daily life for the people of God. Never fully free, 
never fully in their own place, never autonomous, always living with the threat of beasts turning against them and even their own people turning against them. But we're also told that the Ancient of Days will come and the books will be opened and the saints will be found in the right. The little horn will be killed and the saints will receive the kingdom. And this is profoundly good news in Daniel 7. It's profoundly good news. However, we don't witness that directly happening in our everyday life. Again, most of what we experience is the tribulation part. We don't get to see the Ancient of Days coming and ruling in our favor. That's the side of the picture. We experience the tribulation side of the picture, not the divine judgment in our favor. And remember that Daniel hears this, and it's good news, but the chapter ends with him alarmed in his thoughts. He's concerned. And that's why we have to keep the whole pattern in mind when we experience tribulation. When we experience tribulation in our everyday life, we need to keep the whole pattern in mind. Tribulation, divine judgment, vindication. We can have the tendency to see tribulation as all that there is, that that's all that exists, but it's not all that there is. Divine judgment has already been cast in our favor. No matter what tribulation we experience in life, divine judgment has already been cast in our favor. Jesus has been declared to be in the right. God raised him from the dead, and he's ascended to his Father's side, and he's brought us with him. What's true of Jesus is true of us, and he's brought us with him into the Father's presence. We're the captives that he's rescued, and we're seated with him in heavenly places even now. We've already been vindicated and received the kingdom. It's not always going to feel like it, but it's nonetheless true. John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus is telling us to keep the whole pattern in mind. We will have tribulation, but Jesus has overcome the world. Our directive is to remain faithful, to remain rock solid and faithful, even when we feel like we're constantly being defeated by the little horn, even when we constantly feel like we're in the long defeat. We are to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand in the evil day. And I'll close with this from 1 John chapter 5. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, that we be faithful. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Amen. Amen.